Section 37 of L'Assommoir. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Giessen. L'Assommoir by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Fourth part of Chapter 8. Coupeau and Lantier were forever going out junketing together. Lantier would now borrow money from Gervaise, ten francs, twenty francs at a time, whenever he smelt there was money in the house. Then on those days he would keep Coupeau away from his work, talk of some distant errand and take him with him. Then seated opposite to each other in the corner of some neighbouring eating-house, they would guzzle fancy dishes which one cannot get at home, and wash them down with bottles of expensive wine. The zinc-worker would have preferred to booze in a less pretentious place, but he was impressed by the aristocratic tastes of Lantier, who would discover on the bill of fare dishes with the most extraordinary names. It was hard to understand a man so hard to please. Maybe it was from being a southerner. Lantier didn't like anything too rich, and argued about every dish, sending back meat that was too salty or too peppery. He hated draughts. If a door was left open, he complained loudly. At the same time, he was very stingy, only giving the waiter a tip of two sous for a meal of seven or eight francs. He was treated with respect in spite of that. The pair were well known along the exterior boulevards, from Batignolles to Belleville. They would go to the Grand Rue des Batignolles to eat tripe cooked in the Caen style. At the foot of Montmartre, they obtained the best oysters in the neighbourhood at the town of Bar-le-Duc. When they ventured to the top of the height, as far as the Galette windmill, they had a stewed rabbit. The lilacs in the Rue des Martyrs had a reputation for their calf's head, whilst the restaurant of the Golden Lion and the two chestnut trees in the Chaussée Clignancourt served them stewed kidneys which made them lick their lips. Usually they went toward Belleville, where they had tables reserved for them at some places of such excellent repute that you could order anything with your eyes closed. These eating sprees were always surreptitious, and the next day they would refer to them indirectly while playing with the potatoes served by Gervaise. Once Lantier brought a woman with him to the Galette windmill, and Coupeau left immediately after dessert. One naturally cannot both guzzle and work, so that ever since the hatter was made one of the family, the zinc-worker, who was already pretty lazy, had got to the point of never touching a tool. When tired of doing nothing, he sometimes let himself be prevailed upon to take a job. Then his comrade would look him up and chaff him unmercifully when he found him hanging to his knotty cord like a smoked ham, and he would call him to come down and have a glass of wine. And that settled it. The zinc-worker would send the job to blazes and commence a booze which lasted days and weeks. Oh, it was a famous booze, a general review of all the dram-shops of the neighbourhood. The intoxication of the morning slept off by midday, and renewed in the evening. The goes of vitriol succeeded one another, becoming lost in the depths of the night, like the Venetian lanterns of an illumination, 
until the last candle disappeared with the last glass. That rogue of a hatter never kept on to the end. He let the other get elevated, then gave him the slip and returned home smiling in his pleasant way. He could drink a great deal without people noticing it. When one got to know him well, one could only tell it by his half-closed eyes and his over-bold behaviour to women. The zinc-worker, on the contrary, became quite disgusting, and could no longer drink without putting himself into a beastly state. Thus, towards the beginning of November, Coupeau went in for a booze which ended in a most dirty manner, both for himself and the others. The day before, he had been offered a job. This time Lantier was full of fine sentiments. He lauded work, because work ennobles a man. In the morning he even rose before it was light, for he gravely wished to accompany his friend to the workshop, honouring in him the workman really worthy of the name. But when they arrived at the little civet which was just opening, they entered to have a plum in brandy, only one merely to drink together to the firm observance of a good resolution. On a bench opposite the counter, and with his back against the wall, Bibi the smoker was sitting, smoking, with a sulky look on his face. "'Hallo, here's Bibi having a snooze,' said Coupeau. "'Are you down in the dumps, old bloke?' "'No, no,' replied the comrade, stretching his arm. "'It's the employers who disgust me. I sent mine to the right about yesterday.' They're all toads and scoundrels. Bibi the smoker accepted a plum. He was no doubt waiting there on that bench for someone to stand him a drink. Lantier, however, took the part of the employers. They often had some very hard times, as he who had been in business himself well knew. The workers were a bad lot, forever getting drunk. They didn't take the work seriously. Sometimes they quit in the middle of a job and only returned when they needed something in their pockets. Then Lantier would switch his attack to the employers. They were nasty exploiters, regular cannibals, but he could sleep with a clear conscience, as he had always acted as a friend to his employees. He didn't want to get rich the way others did. "'Let's be off, my boy,' he said, speaking to Coupeau. "'We must be going, or we should be late.' Bibi the smoker followed them, swinging his arms. Outside, the sun was scarcely rising, the pale daylight seemed dirtied by the muddy reflection of the pavement. It had rained the night before, and it was very mild. The gas lamps had just been turned out. The Rue des Poissonniers, in which shreds of night, rent by the houses, still floated, was gradually filling with the dull tramp of the workmen descending towards Paris. Coupeau, with his zinc-worker's bag slung over his shoulder, walked along in the imposing manner of a fellow who feels in good form for a change. He turned round and asked, "'Bibi, do you want a job? The boss told me to bring a pal if I could.' "'No, thanks,' answered Bibi the smoker. "'I'm purging myself. You should ask my boots. He was looking for something yesterday. Wait a minute. My boots is most likely in there.' And as they reached the bottom of the street, they indeed caught sight of my boots inside Père Colombe's. In spite of the early hour, l'assommoir was flaring, the shutters down, the gas lighted. Lantier stood at the door, telling Coupeau to make haste, because they only had ten minutes left. 
"'What, you're going to work for that rascal Bourguignon?' yelled My Boots when the zinc-worker had spoken to him. "'You'll never catch me in his hatch again now. I'd rather go till next year with my tongue hanging out of my mouth. But, old fellow, you won't stay three days, and it's I who tell you so.' "'Really, now, is it such a dirty hole?' asked Coupeau anxiously. Oh, "'It's about the dirtiest. You can't move there. The ape's forever on your back. And such queer ways, too.' A missus who always says you're drunk. A shop where you mustn't spit. I sent them to the right about the first night, you know. Good, now I'm warned. I shan't stop there forever. I'll just go this morning to see what it's like. But if the boss bothers me, I'll catch him up and plant him upon his missus, you know, banged together like two fillets of sowl. Then Coupeau thanked his friend for the useful information and shook his hand. As he was about to leave, My Boots cursed angrily. Was that lousy Bourguignon going to stop them from having a drink? Weren't they free any more? He could well wait another five minutes. Lantier came in to share in the round, and they stood together at the counter. My Boots, with his smock black with dirt and his cap flattened on his head, had recently been proclaimed King of Pigs and Drunks after he had eaten a salad of live beetles and chewed a piece of a dead cat. "'Say there, old Borger,' he called to Père Colombe, "'give us some of your yellow stuff, first-class mule's wine.' And when Père Colombe, pale and quiet in his blue-knitted waistcoat, had filled the four glasses, these gentlemen tossed them off so as not to let the liquor get flat. "'That does some good when it goes down.' murmured Bibi the smoker. The comic My Boots had a story to tell. He was so drunk on the Friday that his comrades had stuck his pipe in his mouth with a handful of plaster. Anyone else would have died of it. He merely strutted about and puffed out his chest. "'Do you gentlemen require anything more?' asked Père Colombe in his oily voice. "'Yes, fill us up again,' said Lantier. "'It's my turn.' Now they were talking of women. Bibi the smoker had taken his girl to an aunt's at Montrouge on the previous Sunday. Coupeau asked for the news of the Indian mail, a washerwoman of Chaillot, who was known in the establishment. They were about to drink when My Boots loudly called to Gouget and Laurieux, who were passing by. They came just to the door, but would not enter. The blacksmith did not care to take anything. The chainmaker, pale and shivering, held in his pocket the gold chains he was going to deliver, and he coughed and asked them to excuse him, saying that the least drop of brandy would make him split his sides. "'There are hypocrites for you,' grunted My Boots. "'I bet they have their drinks on the sly.' And when he had poked his nose in his glass, he attacked Père Colombe. "'Vile druggist, you've changed the bottle!' You know it's no good trying to palm your cheap stuff off on me. The day had advanced. A doubtful sort of light lit up La Sommoire, where the landlord was turning out the gas. Coupeau found excuses for his brother-in-law, who could not stand drink, which, after all, was no crime. He even approved Gouget's behaviour, for it was a real blessing never to be thirsty. And as he talked of going off to his work, Lantier, with his grand air of a gentleman, sharply gave him a lesson. One at least stood one's turn before sneaking off. One should not leave one's friends like a mean blackguard, even when going to do one's duty. 
Is he going to badger us much longer about his work? cried My Boots. So this is your turn, sir? asked Pere Colombe of Coupeau. The latter paid. But when it came to Bibi the smoker's turn, he whispered to the landlord, who refused with a shake of the head. My Boots understood, and again set to abusing the old Jew Colombe. What, a rascal like him dared to behave in that way to a comrade? Everywhere else one could get drink on tick. It was only in such low boozing dens that one was insulted. The landlord remained calm, leaning his big fists on the edge of the counter. He politely said, Lend the gentleman some money, that will be far simpler. Mon Dieu, yes, I'll lend him some, yelled my boots. Here, B.B., throw this money in his face, the limb of Satan. Then, excited and annoyed at seeing Coupeau with his bag slung over his shoulder, he continued speaking to the zinc worker. You look like a wet nurse. Drop your brat. It will give you a hump back. Coupeau hesitated an instant, and then, quietly, as though he had only made up his mind after considerable reflection, he laid his bag on the ground, saying, It's too late now. I'll go to Bourguignon's after lunch. I'll tell him the missus was ill. Listen, Père Colombe, I'll leave my tools under this seat, and I'll call for them at twelve o'clock. Lantier gave his blessing to this arrangement with an approving nod. Labour was necessary, yes, but when you're with good friends, courtesy comes first. Now the four had five hours of idleness before them. They were full of noisy merriment. Coupeau was especially relieved. They had another round and then went to a small bar that had a billiard table. At first Lantier turned up his nose at this establishment because it was rather shabby. So much liquor had been spilled on the billiard table that the balls stuck to it. Once the game got started, though, Lantier recovered his good humour and began to flaunt his extraordinary knack with a cue. When lunchtime came, Coupeau had an idea. He stamped his feet and cried, We must go and fetch Salted Mouth. I know where he's working. We'll take him to Mayor Louis to have some petitots. The idea was greeted with acclamation. Yes, Salted Mouth, otherwise drink without thirst, was no doubt in want of some petitots. They started off. Coupeau took them to the boat factory in Rue Marcadet. As they arrived a good half hour before the time the workmen came out, the zinc worker gave a youngster two sous to go in and tell Salted Mouth that his wife was ill and wanted him at once. The blacksmith made his appearance, waddling in his walk, looking very calm and scenting a tuck-out. "'Ah, you jokers,' said he, as soon as he caught sight of them hiding in a doorway. "'I guessed it. Well, what are we going to eat?' At Mother Louis, whilst they sucked the little bones of the petitots, they again fell to abusing the employers. Salted Mouth, otherwise drink without thirst, related that they had a most pressing order to execute at the shop. Ah, oh, the ape was pleasant for the time being. One could be late, and he would say nothing. He no doubt considered himself lucky when one turned up at all. At any rate, no boss would dare to throw Salted Mouth out the door, because she couldn't find lads of his capacity any more. After the petitots, they had an omelette. When each of them had emptied his bottle, Mère Louis brought some Auvergne wine, thick enough to cut with a knife. The party was really warming up. 
"'What do you think is the ape's latest idea?' cried Salted Mouth at dessert. "'Why, he's been and put up a bell in his shed. A bell! That's good for slaves. Ah, oh, well, it can ring today. They won't catch me again at the anvil. For five days past I've been sticking there. I may give myself a rest now. If he deducts anything, I'll send him to blazes.' "'I,' said Coupeau, with an air of importance, "'I'm obliged to leave you. I'm off to work. "'Yes, I promised my wife. "'Amuse yourselves. My spirit, you know, remains with my pals.'" End of fourth part of chapter 8 Recording by Martin Geeson in Hazelmere, Surrey